Lopate at large, I'm Leonard Lopate. A century or so ago, American industrial workers worked 10 to 12 hours a day, six or seven days a week. It was often under dangerous conditions for little pay, and they were given no time off for vacations, sicknesses, or family emergencies. In 1905, some of those workers formed a union, the Industrial Workers of the World. Its members were known as Wobblies. In his latest book, Ahmed White, the uh, Nicholas Rosenbaum Professor of Law at the University of Colorado Boulder, looks at what follows. Under the Iron Heel, the Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers is published by the University of California Press and brings Professor White to our show now. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Weren't many workers involved uh, many of the workers involved, not regular employees, but often what were called itinerant, vagrant, migrant, seasonal workers, handy men who performed odd jobs? Yes, particularly when the IWW kind of found its footing, uh, reached its, 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 its point of greatest prominence, uh, which would have been in the late 19-teens and early 1920s. A lot of migratory workers. Not factory workers on the whole? They had other unions? Um, not factory workers by that point. Earlier in its history, the IWW uh, did make some inroads among factory workers. Some people may uh, be familiar with a couple of very famous strikes uh, in 1912, the so-called Bread and Roses strike among textile workers in Lawrence, Massachusetts, was led by the IWW. And a year later, another textile worker strike uh, in Patterson, New Jersey, uh, was also led by the IWW. But uh, by the time the union really became prominent and threatening and, and, and the subject of, um, of, of the most sustained repression, uh, in the 19, late 19-teens and early 1920s, its core of membership was migratory workers, uh, mainly in agriculture, uh, lumber, construction, oil, uh, on the waterfronts. Do we know why they started being called the Wobblies? That is a good question, and I don't have uh, a good answer to it. I don't know that anyone does. There's a, a persistent notion that, which is not a very very savory one that uh, somehow it evolved out of the inability of uh, of Asian immigrant workers to pronounce IWW. But I, I think that's been, um, if not entirely repudiated, then called into question. And so it, it remains a mystery uh, why the uh, the workers were called Wobblies, but everyone called them Wobblies, uh, friends and enemies alike, and, and they called themselves Wobblies. There were other unions uh, that were formed in that time or before, like the Knights of, Knights of Labor in the late 19th century, that didn't last long. So should the Wobblies have expected to have had a long tenure? That's a good question. Um, in some ways, no. Uh, in some ways, they predicted their own demise. I don't think they expected it or worked towards it, but... They were under no illusions that as an avowedly radical organization that would challenge mm. the power of capitalists uh, at every level, from the point of production up to the control of, 
of the whole economic order that as such an organization, they could expect to be persecuted and persecuted savagely. Uh, and they were. Wasn't the American Federation of Labor also organizing workers at the time? Uh, was it, were they considered more acceptable because they were a more conservative alternative? Yes, um, absolutely. Now, it's true that back then, uh, no unions were uh, were welcomed uh, as a rule by employers uh, or by the political order. Uh, not not without question, but uh, but your point is entirely right that um, compared to the IWW, the AFL, uh, which was a much larger organization, which still uh, is around, which still is very much around. Um, was was more acceptable. And it was also at least its top leadership and uh, a fair number of its affiliates were were quite hostile to the IWW. Uh, didn't the IWW's growth coincide with World War One and the Russian Revolution? Did capitalists and, and government officials view it as a leftist threat? Yes, they did. Um, they did before the war and the, the Bolshevik Revolution. But uh, given that the union achieved its greatest prominence and strength uh, around the time of the war and the Russian Revolution, um, that gave its adversaries a very convenient and effective way of framing their opposition to the IWW as something more than an assertion of their class interest. Uh, they were able to say very effectively that this union was a real danger, uh, a danger to the war effort, a danger to the social order, that the IWW was a, an arm of Bolshevism, which was, which was not true, but uh, none of this was really that true, but uh, it didn't matter. It, it gave great credence to this campaign to destroy the organization. At its peak, it had 150,000 members. Was that considered a large number at the time? You know, yes and no. Uh, in absolute terms, it was pretty small compared to, say, the AFL or some of its big constituent unions like the uh, United Mine Workers. It was fairly small. Um, but the 150,000 uh, number uh, is a little bit misleading in a way. Uh, you mentioned earlier, and we talked about earlier, the fact that the union was comprised heavily of uh, migratory workers, of itinerant workers. One effect of that was that there was a lot of um, transience in its membership as well. A lot of people cycled in and out of the IWW. So the 150,000 uh, number is a, a good estimate of 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 how many members it had on any given day. In flux. In, in flux. And in 1917, several times that number had passed through the organization. Uh, and many, many of those people remained loyal to the union. They just happened not to have a union card at that, uh, at that moment. And I should also add, many, many other workers were prepared to sympathize with the organization, with the IWW, uh, in the course of labor disputes. So when trouble started, um, and the union had proved this many times in its history by 1917, when trouble started, many workers would rally uh, to, its, uh, to its support. You mentioned the United Mine Workers. Most of the uh, unions were uh, devoted to a specific industry. Uh, the, the IWW uh, odd because it... Uh, really have, saw itself as one big union? Uh, yes, and in fact, it, it had something in common with the uh, United Mine Workers in that regard. 
the two were um, rare examples of industrial unions at a time when most industrial workers were not organized in any union, and most unions were craft unions, mm -hmm. which is to say they organized workers based upon a particular skill within an industry, as opposed to saying we're, we're going to organize the entire industry. Well, the IWW uh, was an industrial union of the first order. It, it intended to organize the entire industrial uh, working class. And its vision was actually larger. Its vision of unionism... Uh you describe as reaching across the divides of race, ethnicity, and gender. And this is uh, during the period of, of Jim Crow. That's right. This was an exceptional organization. Um, probably most unions back then had some nominal um, openness to members with, without regard for ethnicity or race, sometimes uh, sex or gender. But in fact, uh, they tended to be pretty Exclusionary, not the IWW. It it was uh, overt in its uh, policy of welcoming workers, regardless of race, ethnicity, sex, or gender, nationality, all of that. And that didn't help its um, its its situation in that period. Uh, but the union was nothing if not devoted to its founding principles, and that was one of them. But weren't most of the union's members white men? Yes. Uh, in, in fact, uh, that's true. The majority of the members of the IWW were white. There were some important exceptions, uh, particularly on the East Coast and some of the East Coast waterfronts where the union uh, was very successful in organizing um, black workers. Um, but out West, where in the late teens and early 20s, the union's membership was centered, most of its members were white. And I, I think that mainly reflected uh, the fact that uh, most of the workers in the industries where it was organizing were, uh, were white men. But it wasn't limited to the United States. Didn't it also have active wings in Canada, the, the UK, and Australia? Uh, yes, it did. Um, it, it made inroads there in Canada, something called the One Big Union. In Australia, where it also was viciously repressed, it, it made some inroads. Uh, some of my uh, uh, colleagues in researching the IWW are doing, I think, very interesting, very good work in bringing to light this aspect of the union's, uh, of the union's history. Um, it was active even in, um, in, in, in parts of Africa and Asia. It never had a huge membership in those places, but again, its influence was always uh, out of proportion to how many people it actually enlisted and collected dues from. How effective uh, was the IWW enforcing concessions from employers? That's a good question, and it actually was. I, I, I mentioned several times that it really found its footing in the late teens and 20s. Well, that aligned with its success in actually uh, achieving for the workers it organized uh, some lasting improvements in working conditions. So this was, in one sense, an avowedly revolutionary organization intent on toppling capitalism, but in another sense, it was also supposedly about improving its members' working conditions, and it did do that um, fairly effectively, again, in industries like uh, like um, wheat production, uh, agriculture in the high plains, and timber 
um, again, construction on the waterfronts, it, it achieves some meaningful gains for uh, its members. You say one of his goals was to topple capitalism. So did it see itself as uh, having similar goals to the new Soviet Union and to the oh. or to European socialists in general? In some respects, I mean, all of these uh, movements and, and many others at this time were were intent on bringing capitalism down and erecting some kind of socialist alternative. Um, the IWW was different than the conventional socialist movement, um, the Socialist Party, for instance, in the United States, and certainly different from the Bolsheviks, uh, both in its methods and in its um, in its image of how this would all work, how it would organize society. Uh, the IWW, unlike the socialists and the Bolsheviks, uh, was a syndicalist organization with anarchist um, tendencies. Uh, what that meant, above all, was that it, it imagined bringing down capitalism not by political means, not by capturing the state like the Bolsheviks uh, through some kind of Pucha revolution and not by capturing it by electoral politics like the the mainstream socialist, um, but rather by means of organizing workers into what it called generically, you know, one big union. And uh, at some point, when it had organized enough workers, uh, calling uh, a massive general strike uh, that would um, would would bring the capitalist system to a standstill, force the capitalists to capitulate, uh, to surrender the means of production. Uh, and then the union's idea after that uh, was that it would organize a workers' commonwealth, and that, that reflected its kind of syndicalist uh, tendencies, that the, the means of organizing society would, would, would be centered on workers and centered on workers' organizations. Uh, and that also distinguished the IWW from uh, the socialist and the Bolsheviks. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Ahmed White. Am I pronouncing your first name correctly? Because it's A-H-M-E-D. Yes, that's a, that's a fine pronunciation. Okay. Uh, Ahmed is fine as well. I'm, I'm, I'm open to either pronunciation. <laughs> His book is Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers, published by the University of California Press. And this is WBAI, New York 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. You're critical of Supreme Court justices like Louis Brandeis, who was called a people's lawyer and, and a great defender of, of freedom of speech, and also Felix Frankfurter, one of the founders of the ACLU. But uh, that was because of the way they interpreted the phrase clear and present danger? It was one reason. I, I think uh, lying beneath that was the fact that they, like many uh, progressives or liberals, uh, even those who verged towards the left, uh, drew a line, um, a line that, that divided the kinds of unions and the kinds of leftists they would support from those they wouldn't. And the IWW fell on the wrong side of that line. And that was true for a lot of progressives and liberals, or liberals as we would call them today, uh, in the early 20th century who, were, who dealt with the IWW. And so one of the realities of the union's story uh, is that 
its destruction was in significant part a product of hostility from progressives uh, who wanted to destroy the organization and were, again, played a prominent role in accomplishing that. Because they wanted um, to change society in a different way. That's right. They, they wanted gradual changes, uh, not the revolutionary changes that the IWW uh, promoted. And I, I also think that there was um, a different basis to their hostility, another basis to their hostility, and it had to do with who these wobblies were, something we alluded to a few minutes ago. These were um, people from the, the lowest rung. The great unwashed. Um, the great unwashed, that's right. Um, and it was hard for many progressives, progressivism being above all a middle-class movement, it was hard for many of them to sympathize with these people, particularly when these wobblies were saying, uh, we are going to change the world. Um, they weren't asking the progressives to help them. They weren't asking to be patronized. They rejected that. Uh, they said, we workers, as, as, as uneducated and unskilled as we are, we are the handmaidens of a new world, not you. Uh, I think that rubbed many progressives the wrong way, and it it uh, it inclined many of them not to sympathize with the IWW. Your book is a history, but as a professor of the U.S. legal system, weren't you able to analyze how legal proceedings were used against the Wobblies? Yeah, this this book started out as a, a book about uh, kind of the mechanisms of repression during the early 20th century. And I, I figured out along the way that, that no one wants to read a book about that when, when they could read a book about people and the people who were the victims of this. And that was fundamentally more than anyone, the IWW, the Wobblies. Uh, but the book remained very much, remains very much focused on legal repression. That's not all that it's about, but, but that is a main theme in the book. And I, I look at different ways that the law was used uh, to, to effectively destroy this organization. Well, you've uncovered how banal changes, charges led to severe charges of vagrancy for the rank and file. What did that include? People were charged for things like wandering, loitering, strolling, and even juggling? They were seen as criminal acts? That's right. I mean, you, you're, you're, you're uh, reciting something that could be found in just about some terms that could be found in just about every vagrancy law in existence back then, and they, and they existed everywhere. There were vagrancy uh, and, laws in all the states, or, or most all of the, the states, um, and and many of the most municipalities, many counties. So there there are many different layers of vagrancy laws. They all feature that kind of language, and what that reflected was the fact these laws were were drafted in a way that allowed basically any or any or everybody to be charged uh, with vagrancy. Uh, they were extraordinarily broad. Uh, and what it basically boiled down to was, if you could not give a good account of yourself to the police or to some magistrate or, or police court judge or someone like that, you were guilty of vagrancy. It was as simple as that. Now, millions of people, itinerant workers, poor people, uh, minorities, 
um, folk like that were prosecuted for vagrancy before, during, and after the IWW's uh, active years. But when the IWW was prominent, these vagrancy laws proved e extremely effective uh, in undermining the organization. Again, because anyone could be charged and prosecuted for vagrancy, the laws were very effective. Uh, they typically what happened was if uh, IWWs were active somewhere organizing people or holding out for higher wages in some town somewhere, um, the police would descend on them, arrest uh, any number of them, certainly the, or the main organizers, charge them with vagrancy and either lock them up uh, for 10, 20, 30 days in jail um, or run them out of town. Uh, in lieu of locking them up. And either way, they probably seize their union materials, uh, seize any dues that they had collected along the way. Uh, it was very, very effective, and not least because it, it, it could be accomplished so quickly. Uh, there were very few procedural protections, uh, especially with a crime like this, which was a misdemeanor. And so people were arrested, and within sometimes an hour or so, all that I just mentioned had ha had happened. Um, they were they were on their way, or they were behind bars. And, go ahead. I'm sorry. And I, and, and and I would say, uh, I would just add, um, almost everyone who was affiliated with the union was probably arrested for vagrancy at least once, and many people, numerous times. And once they were arrested and discovered to be an IWW member, couldn't Wobblies expect to receive severe punishment under felonious criminal syndicalism laws in, in many of the, the states? That's right. Uh, uh, um, some of the people who were picked up uh, during this period were charged with criminal syndicalism. Uh, and uh, several hundred of them went to prison, um, some of them serving as long as six years in prison for criminal syndicalism. What is criminal What's, syndicalism exactly? Well, that's the thing. It, it's a, a type of law that was devised for the purpose of criminalizing the IWW. Hmm. The first of these laws was enacted in the spring of 1917 in Idaho. And shortly after that, another one was enacted in uh, Minnesota. And within several years, about 20 states, most of them in the west, west of the Mississippi, where the union was most active, had enacted criminal syndicalism laws. They were mostly in the west, you say, mostly in the west, where the mm -hmm. union was most active. And these were interesting laws. They they were designed, again, to criminalize merely being in the IWW. Now, the people behind them knew that if they just wrote a law that said, if you're in the IWW, that makes you a felon, that that would probably not pass constitutional muster, that, that some courts would rebel, that this, this offends some constitutional principles. They knew that. And so what they did was something actually pretty clever. Uh, they wrote these laws in such a way that they made it a crime to advocate what was called industrial or political change by means of uh, typically they said violence, uh, sabotage or other criminal acts. And they also were written in a way that made it a crime not only to advocate that kind of change, but to be a member of an organization that advocated that kind of revolutionary change. Uh, and so in practice, 
uh, they did what they were designed to do. They, they, they essentially made it a crime to be a member of the IWW because what happened was uh, prosecutors would put the union on trial. They would convince jurors that the union was a criminal organization dedicated to these kinds of prohibited means of social change and then rely on the fact that these wobblies uh, even if they could disclaim their membership in the union, they were, as a rule, very much disinclined to do that. And so their membership was obvious. As long as you convince the jury that the union was a criminal organization in the way the statute defined it, uh, you were able to convict these people. And again, hundreds were convicted and sent to prison. And you mentioned Idaho, where criminal criminal syndicalism, in other words, IWW membership, could mean jail time of 10 years and fines of $5,000. Now, we're talking about a long time ago, $5,000. What would that be in uh, 2023 dollars for somebody oh, who somebody who is just an itinerant worker? Yeah, you could. Yeah, I think you could multiply that. I'm just roughly 20, 20 times, twenty something times. I heard so, it was seventy five thousand dollars. It's a that's a lot of it's a lot of money. And now most of the fines weren't paid because these people didn't have any money, but these prosecutions did take a huge uh, financial toll on the organization, mainly through the cost of legal defense and bail money. Uh, and so the union's records were scattered and. Uh, and they were also destroyed, many of them, by the federal government after it raided the IWW's headquarters, um, began raiding them in the, in the summer, the late summer of 1917. So it's hard to, to get definite numbers, but it's pretty clear that the union spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on legal defense. And that's in 1918, or uh, whatever money. So that, that amounted to millions, uh, today. millions of dollars from an organization whose members were, as we've noted several times, people who picked wheat for a living, uh, who cut wood for a living, who, uh, who didn't have any money at all. Uh, it, it, was, it was devastating, uh, the financial toll alone of all these prosecutions. You tell the stories of men like Joseph Neal and Jack Gaville. Uh, didn't Joseph Neal spend six years in jail after he'd asked someone for some change so he could eat? Yes, he's, uh, he, he figures prominently. That was in a panhandling? Book. Was that the problem? That was right. He was panhandling in Kansas, uh, and he was picked up. And when it was discovered he was uh, an IWW, that set in motion a process that resulted in him being convicted of criminal syndicalism. And he spent, as near as I could tell, more time in prison for criminal syndicalism than anyone um, six years in Kansas, mm. locked up. And he he features in the book fairly prominently for a reason, that one thing I try to do with the book, because I think this is important, is to emphasize how many people like Joe Neal, who was just a rank-and-file member, were caught up in this labyrinth of repression um, and the price they paid. Um, this this man, was he suffered mightily uh, for what was... Uh, for what, uh, for what he did, which was to be a member of this union. And Jack Gaville, I mentioned, who'd been a member of the IWW since 1913, was convicted of criminal syndicalism in 1921. Um, do you think that it, uh, 
the fact that he was uh, a foreigner, actually, he was Dutch, uh, had uh, was one of the reasons that he also was given such harsh treatments, uh, sent to jail for three years at San Quentin? Uh, yes, in the sense that hostility to the IWW was wrapped up in strong anti-immigrant sentiments. Um, even though the union itself, by the late 19-teens and early 20s, uh, did not comprise a particularly large number of, of immigrants compared to, say, other labor organizations. But it didn't matter that unions in general, the American left in general, was strongly associated with union, with, I'm sorry, immigrants, at a time when there was a great deal of uh, nativism and xenophobia. Uh, in this country, uh, those were underpinnings of the Red Scare uh, of uh, 1919, 1920, which also gave more impetus to uh, the campaign to destroy the IWW, even though the Red Scare was also focused on other organizations or movements, the socialist and communist uh, and anarchist, among others. Was it important that the uh, the punishments were sometimes rather harsh? Uh, was that seen as a warning? For example, in 1918, didn't a prison mutiny against conditions in the Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary lead to people being chained with their arms pulled up over their heads for seven hours a day for many days um, to the doors of, of uh, isolation cells? Yes, this was one of several episodes, um, a number of episodes, where IWWs protested their conditions in prison uh, and were, were, were in turn, in, in repayment for that, subjected to even more brutal treatments. Uh, this happened at Leavenworth, where most of the 160 or so uh, IWW members who were sent to federal prison were locked up. And it also happened in other prisons, most prominently in the California prisons, uh, San Quentin, um, uh, more than any other. 500 the, IWWs were sent to federal prisons, uh, right? Uh, about about And tens of thousands in state prisons or local jails. In local jails, yeah, the, um, the, the, the vagrancy prosecutions, mainly vagrancy prosecutions landed, it, I would say, roughly 10,000. Who knows with those, because the records are just simply non-existent. But if you extrapolate from how many members the union had and how often they were locked up for vagrancy, it, it could be many times that number uh, who were in jail. The, the Wobblies had a saying, uh, they, they were nothing if not inclined to a kind of dark, humor about themselves uh and one way that was reflected was in a in this saying or uh, that went something along the lines of uh if you take out a red union membership card that was that was a a pass card to prison or jail mm. and it, it was funny because it was true um if you were caught with that card by some cop somewhere there was a very good chance you'd get locked up at least for vagrancy and there was a you know a not not trivial chance that you could end up in federal or state prison. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. 
When the union's inspiration through the workers' blood shall run, there can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. Yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one? But the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Ahmed White. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, the one we're discussing, Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers. But to do that, just go online to give2wbai.org. That's give and the number 2wbai.org. Or call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950 during today's show. And we'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $50 or more donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And we thank you very much. And return to Ahmed White who's a Nicholas Rosenbaum professor of law at the University of Colorado in Boulder, where he teaches and writes about labor, crime, and repression. Uh, he's the author of uh, other books uh, and numerous articles and essays as well. Um, now, uh, you say that Repression was a major cause of the union's demise and that the IWW was probably subjected to more sustained and intensive repression than any organization, labor union or otherwise, in the history of the United States? Well, certainly since uh, since uh, the Civil War and the, uh, the, the period of Reconstruction that followed it, uh, I would say, um, because this was organized and it was comprehensive um, and it, it played out at every level. I mean, one thing we, we haven't talked about, uh, although it figures in the book, is uh, the informal or extra-legal repression that the union endured, vigilantism. Um, everything from some celebrated and notorious incidents like uh, the so-called um, uh, Centra Centralia Massacre in 1919 or the uh, the the Everett massacre in both in Washington State in 1916, um, the latter may have claimed as many as 12 IWWs mm -hmm. shot and killed by a mob of of police and and townspeople there. So you had everything from that these sort of very bloody incidents down to run of the mill beatings um, that union members endured. This was this was comprehensive. They got it at every level. Uh, legal and extra-legal, state, uh, municipal, local, and federal. Um, it it was it was quite extraordinary, and so yeah, I think that that claim can be justified. Um, and not to take away from other groups and what they endured, but. But this story, I think, stands out in a lot of ways. You've said that you decided to write this book when you realized that the Wobbly story hadn't been adequately told. Haven't there been a number of other books about the Wobblies in the past? Yes. Uh, you know, everyone who's written about the Wobblies has addressed in some way the history of repression. You, you really can't talk about the IWW without doing that. But one thing that and, I noticed, And they've romanticized them in many of those books, haven't they? Yes, and I think without without intending maybe to do this, and certainly without intending to do it in any malicious way, um, a lot of the writing on the IWW and repression has tended to discount uh, 
the depth of what the union endured, the extent mm-hmm. of what the union endured, and its effects on these uh, on these people. And I got to noticing that, and uh, that was one reason I I wrote this book because I. I, I thought the story had not been fully told. I thought the business of vagrancy um, and the use of criminal syndicalism laws in particular had not been given enough attention. But I also think whatever the crime, whatever the means of repression, that the effect of repression on these uh, these people uh, deserved more attention than it had gotten. And uh, that's one thing I've tried to do with the book, is to show, on the one hand, the extraordinary courage that these people demonstrated in the face of, of, of the awful treatments they were subjected to. On the other hand, uh, the way th- that this repression tested their limits, um, the way they really suffered. Um, and, you and say I, I think repression can be devastating. It, it, I think for many of these people, it was. I, in the book, describe several defendants who, uh, who lost their minds, uh, who were driven insane uh, by the beatings they received uh, inside and outside of prison, by being confined. We mentioned San Quentin. San Quentin had a dungeon, underground dungeon, where uh, men were, were locked up in, in perfect darkness, uh, sleeping on, on straw without, without a mattress for days, weeks on end. And uh, many wobblies, probably most of them who went to San Quentin, found their way into the dungeon. And some of them were simply broken by this. And um, I found that very affecting when I researched this book and when I wrote this book. And I, I thought that deserved as much commentary and treatment as the stories of perseverance and courage. Well, although they perhaps are not as terrible, do you see any parallels uh, with the way uh, dissidents are treated today? Yes, and I think that's something that, that we who comment on that and who criticize that have to remind ourselves of. I mean, one of the realities of the world we live in is the people who research and write about and comment on everyone from the IWW to uh, Julian Assange, as a rule, are people who've who've never been confined in prison, um, never beaten uh, unconscious by the police. Um, we haven't experienced that, and we have to remind ourselves that, yes, the, the courage of these people has to be celebrated, but we also have to remind ourselves of the, the tremendous toll this takes on people who are, like all of us, uh, ordinary. Well, because most of the Wobblies were poorly educated, aren't personal accounts by them hard to come by? Relatively hard to come by, yes. And uh, one of the ironies of their story is that, uh, and and my telling of it, is that one of the um, best resources in writing about the Wobblies uh, consists of their prison records. Uh, I mean, that's a a sad commentary on on who these people were and how history has treated them, that you find out a lot about them from their prison records, letters that their relatives and friends sent them in prison, um, details about them that prison administrators gathered when they inducted them into prison or when they released them or that sort of thing. They were on the very margins of society, and yes, their stories are hard to come by, especially when you get past some of the union's more... um, famous members. Big Bill Hayward's a familiar name to many people at the Union during this period. A 
few minutes ago, we heard... Uh, well, he was jailed in 1918 for his anti-war activities and wound up fleeing to the Soviet Union in 1921. That's right. He was, he was one of um, probably several thousand Wobblies who, who, who jumped ship, mm-hmm. who joined uh, the communist movement uh, when it emerged in this country in the, the summer and fall of 19 of 1919 and yes he 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 died in exile in the in the soviet union um and there are other prominent members whose stories are better known elizabeth Gurley Um, flynn who was one of the founders of the aclu but she was also an iww member uh yes right she organized for the iww the so-called rebel girl she left the union right around the time that the repression really uh began to accelerate she was indicted uh, along with uh, Big Bill Hayward for violating the Federal Espionage Act, but the charges with her against her were never pursued, and she later, as as many people know, resurfaced as a very prominent communist, and then went to prison uh, for violating um, the Alien Registration Act, uh, the Smith Act, um, which was used against communists in beginning in the 1940s and uh, into the 19 uh, into the 1950s. And then another person you write about is Joe Hill, who is a songwriter. In fact, uh, there are songs about Joe Hill. Wasn't he convicted of a murder he probably didn't commit? Yes, he he probably uh, a murder he probably didn't commit. Uh, he was one of a fair number of, of wobblies who spent time in prison on conventional charges uh for which they were essentially framed um there were others who were i mentioned the centralia massacre uh several wobblies were sent to prison in washington state for essentially defending their union hall from an attack by american legionnaires and uh in a fray in which uh, several legionnaires were killed and one iww was lynched well you know in, in line with a pattern that repeated itself many times, uh, none of the legionnaires went to prison uh, or even seriously faced the prospect of prison, uh, but the IWWs did. And one of those men spent uh, a longer time in prison than any IWW. He didn't get out uh, until, uh, I think, 1939. Um, And so he spent a great number of years in prison for a crime he should never have been prosecuted for. Oh, Joe Hill coined the phrase pie in the sky. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And of course, we'll always remember the, that. Mm-hmm. And of course, he is paid the ultimate price as he was executed uh, by the authorities in Utah uh, for the this this uh, murderous robbery that attack on some gro- grocer and his and his son that that he almost certainly, uh, it seems, did not commit. My guest is Ahmed White, whose uh, latest book is Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers, published by the University of California Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Yeah, I don't know how much you want to go into these, but you also talk, tell the stories of Ben Fletcher, a black man, and then uh, Charles Ashley, a gay white man who was later the romantic partner of Harlem Renaissance writer Claude McKay. Um, so they all went, they were all arrested uh, for the IWW, and uh, Fletcher and Ashley were sent to federal prison. 
Well, that's right. They both were part of the prosecution uh, that sent Big Bill Hayward to prison and almost sent Elizabeth Gurley Flynn to prison. This was an interesting case. It involved over 100 defendants. Um, and when the verdict was rendered, there were, I think, 96, 97 defendants still in, in the dock. It's one of the largest trials in history, and it also was a very lengthy trial. It lasted from April Fool's Day to late August, and it resulted in essentially all of these defendants, almost all of them being convicted and sent, um, and sent, to, federal, uh, sent to federal prison. It was the largest of three uh, large federal trials. There were two others, uh, one in Sacramento and the other in Kansas City. They all were premised on the same idea that the IWW, the defendants in these cases, were guilty of conspiring to undermine the war effort. They were, according to federal prosecutors, guilty of doing so by means of a campaign of strikes and sabotage. And that put them in violation of several federal statutes, including most prominently uh, the Federal Espionage Act, which had been enacted, or provision of the Federal Espionage Act, which had been enacted uh, shortly after the United States entered the Second World War, so er early in the summer of 1917. And the provision in question had been included. You mean the First the, World War, 1917? The First World War, yes, I'm sorry, the First World War. And enacted with the, with the expectation that this provision would be used to prosecute leftists, including the IWW. And so they were brought to trial on this theory that they had organized this, uh, these strikes and this campaign of sabotage to undermine the war effort. Um, there was not any real evidence of this, but it didn't matter. And it did matter in part because of all of the, um, the, the hostility that uh, had been stirred up against the IWW. Um, and it also didn't matter because they were prosecuted uh, for conspiracy. And conspiracy charges do not require, same is true today, that prosecutors demonstrate that defendants did anything beyond agree among themselves to bring about the result they're charged with, in this case, undermining the war effort. And there has to be um, a so-called overt act, but that doesn't amount to much. And and. And no particular defendant need have committed this overt act. The overt act in uh, the big case in Chicago uh, that ensnared Ben Fletcher and Charles Ashley and Big Bill Hayward and many other leaders of the organization consisted of things like publishing materials. So using conspiracy law made it very easy to prosecute and convict these people and most all of them were and they were uh, they were sent to federal prison but but because most of the wobblies were poorly educated aren't personal accounts for them hard to come by so a lot of what we know actually comes from writers like Jack London. He wrote The Iron Heel in 1907. He published it in 1907. That's just two years after the uh, IWW was formed. So, yeah, Jack London is, is, and I try to make this point in the book, part of the story of the IWW. Uh, London was very much influenced by the IWW uh, with the book um, The Iron Heel, as well as a number of his uh, his other works, his, his essays and his short stories. Um, the Dream not of the Devs. Call of the Wild. 
Not the call of the wild, although one could read some of that influence, uh, maybe not the IWW, but certainly his socialist politics into the book. The other side of the coin is that the IWW was much influenced by Jack London, the uh, the book uh, Under the Iron Heel. For many of them was a, a kind of introduction to socialist theory, as it was for many other leftists uh, of that period. Uh, their first introduction to uh, to socialist thought, to a kind of uh, simplified uh, historical materialism. Um, and the IWW embraced London. He never was a member of the union, but when he died in 1916, they eulogized him in their publications as uh, what they called an IWW man. Uh, and so I thought the story of the IWW could not be properly told without including um, Jack London. And I think it's also true for people interested in Jack London that his connections to the IWW are also important in understanding who he was uh, and, and what influenced him in his writing. Didn't James Jones include something about the Wobblies in his famous 1951 novel, From Here to Eternity? He did. What did and, he write? And, and what he did was he, he made one of his characters— uh, in that book, a former IWW. Uh, and in doing so, I, I have to say, he spoke, in, in my view, uh, more intelligently and in, in a more nuanced and, and meaningful and thoughtful way in the space of, I don't know, 15 or 20 pages uh, about the IWW than, than anyone I've ever seen in print. I, I think that that it's a very lengthy novel, and I'm not sure I'd, I'd recommend reading it just to uh, to get hold of his thoughts about the IWW, but it's, a, but it's a very good novel. And if one happens to read it, I think one of the benefits of doing so, if you've any interest in the IWW, is, is, to, is, to, is, to, is to read through those pages. I, I think he understood um, as, as well as or better than anyone um, what that organization was about and what it meant for people who were in it to have it destroyed, what it, what it was like to be a former IWW in the 1930s, 1940s, by which time the union had been driven into irrelevance. So when did the IWW fondly uh, cease to exist? Well, you know, it never really ceased to exist. And as, you, you mean know, I you can know, become a member now? Yes, you can become a member now. It's had a kind of resurgence. Uh, and... Um, and is organizing uh, all over the country. It's not got 150,000 members like the union did back then, and it's not got the kind of influence that the organization had a century ago. It's still around, and it, to its organizers, its members' credit, it's it's kind of resurging in some in, in many ways. But for much of the period from, say, 1925, 26, 27, up through... Um, Really, the 1990s into this century, the union was an irrelevancy. It it, it had members here and there, but it was it was more uh, kind of nostalgia society. And I, I don't say that to denigrate uh, the people who were involved in it. Then it's just a fact that it it took a very long time for it to recover from what was done to it um, back then. And it's a wobbly story. Yes, yes. We have just about a minute and a half left. Is there anything you want to add? Yeah, you know, I, I, I guess I would say, um, I, I would come back to something we talked about earlier. Um, if, 
this isn't a story for for everyone, but if you have any interest in this, I think the reason to follow up on that interest goes to something that we talked about earlier, and not just the fact that this is a story of, of repression and perseverance that has been in many ways forgotten uh, in, in this country's history and the retelling of this country's history, but this is also a kind of universal story, I like to think. Um, and, and, and here I'm talking not so much about my book. I leave it to the readers themselves to judge how good I do this. But the story these people left behind is a, is, is a universal story about resistance, about perseverance, about independence of thought, about challenging a social order that, not unlike our social order today, very much deserves to be challenged, to and be rethought. And congratulations are in order because earlier this year, the International Labor History Association announced that this book under the Iron Heel had won its Book of the Year award for 2022. Uh, the book is called Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers, published by the University of California Press and written by my guest, Ahmed White, the Nicholas Rosenbaum Professor of Law at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Uh, Thank you so much for being on our show. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very, uh, very, very happy to have been here, and, and I much appreciate it. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off, I need to ask you to support BAI to keep the station coming to you on the air because we are going through a rough economic time. Uh, public radio in general has been suffering, but BAI has been finding it hard to, to, to be honest, to pay the rent and pay for our transmitter. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now because we need your help to keep bringing this unique in-depth content information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier... Anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large will receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on, on Radical Workers by Ahmed White. So why not make that call right now to 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and the number 2WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member where we call a BAI buddy for $10, $15, $20, $25, however much you feel comfortable doing a month. It allows us to plan for the future. And we'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, it's important because we are the only radio station in the New York dial that is 100% listener-sponsored. Please help us with your tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us again tomorrow when my guest Donald Kettle will discuss the hidden crisis brought on by the end of Title 42. And we'll be taking listener calls, and we hope to see you there.